Welcome to the Final Goals Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Goals Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, first of all, welcome. Every season, we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism, looking at a particular trope in depth and exploring how it's been presented through horror film history. We're going to be spending the next few months talking about the most elegant of movie monsters, the vampire. In each episode, I'm joined by a special guest to dive deep into a vampire movie or two. We discuss the films in detail and do our best to try to contextualize the films and think about what works and what doesn't from a contemporary perspective. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing two extremely different 1970s films that center black vampires. First of all, we're going to be talking about the 1972 blaxploitation hit Blackula, starring William Marshall in the title role as an 18th century African prince called Mamu Walde, who is turned into a vampire and later locked in a coffin by Count Dracula in the Count's castle in Transylvania after Dracula refuses to help Mamu Walde suppress the slave trade. Then we go into what's definitely one of the most unique and distinctive films I've personally ever seen, the experimental horror film Ganja and Hess, directed by Bill Gunn. The film follows the exploits of anthropologist Dr. Hess Green, played by horror icon Dwayne Jones, who becomes a vampire after his intelligent but unstable assistant stabs him with an ancient cursed dagger. Green then falls in love with his assistant's widow, Ganja, who learns about Green's dark secret. I'm joined in this episode by film critic and podcast regular Leila Latif to discuss both films in depth. This whole season looking at vampire films is made possible with the support of our friends at Arrow Video, who bring you the very best in cult, horror and genre films, specializing in deluxe definitive home entertainment editions with uncut versions, newly commissioned artwork and specially created extras. They've got now more than 500 physical releases out there, and throughout this whole season, in each episode, we'll be recommending a film that we love from their vast collection. And this week, our pick is the Spanish found footage zombie horror wreck. A sort of 28 days later meets the Blair Witch Project, where a mysterious virus turns the inhabitants of an apartment building in Barcelona into a horde of frenzied, bloodthirsty zombies. It's genuinely really, really great. Now, usually, this is where I would give a spoiler warning. But actually, for the large part of this episode, we don't spoil the films at all. And honestly, I'd encourage you to listen to the whole thing, especially if it convinces even one person to seek out the wonderful Ganja and Hess. There is a little bit of spoiler action towards the very end of this episode, but I will make sure to link it in the show notes so you know when it's coming. But for now, please enjoy our discussion about Blackula and Ganja and Hess. Welcome back, Layla. How are you doing? Good. Good to be back. And lockdown is over. The utopia has returned. Well, utopia is a strong word. I'm dancing in the street, right, as we're speaking. Well, you're going to the <laughs> cinema after this, so that I is am... a sort of a utopia. I'm so excited. And I'm going to the cinema the way I prefer it, by myself. Excellent. <laughs> excited to talk about two 70s vampire films. One of them a exploitation film and one of them probably one of the most interesting vampire films I've ever seen. Yeah, which is often like mislabeled as a black exploitation film. So that Absolutely. is quite a hard word to say, black exploitation. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with Blackula from 1972. You shall pay Black Prince. I curse you with my name. You shall be 
Blackula. Blackula. The Black Avenger. Rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula. Dracula's soul brother. Deadlier even than he. You know, he is a strange dude. You're the nut that ran in front of my cab. You're the only imbecile on this street. Boy. Blackula. Look at man, you found I mean, you got to be around here somewhere. I mean, now listen. Well, you take your hands off of me. I don't know you. He thirsts for your blood. He hungers for your soul. Warm young bodies will feed his hunger. Hot, fresh blood will quench his awful thirst. Thank you. I'm Bloody Mary. Are you, um, into the occult? How about the uh, heavy stuff? What do you think of vampires? Vampires? I think they're possibly the most fascinating ball. We've mentioned the the very hard to pronounce word exploitation in the intro, uh, but kind of do you know where this film sits within within that movement? Uh, I think, from what I understand, it was a very early example of it, and it was because black exploitation was taking off. Um, this was one of the first moves into horror, and this was one of the like really big hits, one of the very like big profitable films. Um, when I was doing my research into this, the thing that I found surprising was that um, a lot of black exploitation films weren't actually made by black filmmakers. A lot of them had a white director, white writer, white crew, and they would just kind of plug black actors into these films. Um, What's Blackula was one of the kind of slightly higher budget and more popular ones that had a fully black um, director in William Crane. And... Um, and as a result, I think is a probably a slightly more interesting example of the genre. Yeah, and he would also go on to make uh, another black exploitation horror film called Doctor Black, Mister Hyde, which I haven't seen, but I will definitely seek out. Yeah, um, it's funny. Like you feel that with a lot of, and it's something that happens to female directors and to male directors as well, where they have this big hit. Where if it was like a white young white guy. Uh, that would then be parlayed mm -hmm. into like bigger budgets and more work and stuff. But then often you see people have this like one big hit and then they might do a couple of other things and then they'll kind of like keep ticking along with TV and stuff and it never really goes anywhere. So let's talk about Blackula itself as a film. And, and it's it's impossible, I think, to separate it from exploitation and, and the success that it had and how much it then influenced um, or the influence that it had on black horror itself. But... What do you think of it as a film? Um, I came into it, I'd never seen it before. Mm -hmm. um, this I mean, you um, you asked me which episodes of this I wanted to do, and I immediately zeroed in on this because I hadn't seen it. <laughs> um, and my only real knowledge of Blackula was a really, um, I think, truly hilarious Simpsons joke where Dr. Hibbert is dressed up as Dracula for uh -huh. Halloween but everyone thinks that he's dressed up as Blackula and he gets like increasingly frustrated with this <laughs> but yeah I was kind of just expecting like really like bottom draw terrible mm. um cheesy uninteresting movie and I and 
though it kind of is that, if there were a few kind of nuggets of um, of inspiration and some really interesting layers and like mm. actually a very impressive central performance from William Marshall that I, I was pleasantly surprised by this film. Oh, yeah. And I definitely want to ask you about him. Did it work for you as a horror film or more as a kind of um as a as a product of its time of a very very particular moment in american and in, in, in american cinema um probably more the former but i would say there is actually one moment in it which mm-hmm. i thought was genuinely really scary and affecting oh which one it's where the woman is running in slow-mo down the hall towards the guy on the payphone mm-hmm which um and i i um watched horror noir after this because i knew it had some good i remembered watching horror noir the documentary a few years ago and i was Mm -hmm. like i'm pretty sure some blackula stuff is in there so Mm -hmm. i went back to revisit that and apparently it was this huge battle that william crane had if he just you know he was working with this tiny budget and you know with all these constraints and like had to fight for everything he had to fight to have you know a mixed extras in the background of the nightclub scene like it was not a incredibly supportive studio behind him and all he wanted was just to have this one camera shot that he could do in slow-mo of the um, woman running down the hall and he fought for it and fought for it and finally on the actual day they were due to shoot it he got it and it's I think like the best scary moment in the film by quite some way because aside from that like it's I know that like very cheap horror is often like very endearing Mm -hmm. but like this is like incredibly janky is the only one I can think of like the makeup is just like embarrassing the teeth are like really silly and like yeah it's 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 not even like evil dead kind of levels of like okay cheap but like effective like it's fully terrible um (laughs) But yeah, but he gets this one moment and it makes you think that like, oh, I'd be really interested to see what a director like this could do yeah. untethered by um, all of these restraints. But, you know, he never really got the opportunity. Mm. So you you mentioned that you'd never seen this film before and kind of that it is it is quite janky. But it's still quite fun, I think, to watch. Like a lot of exploitation yeah. films can be quite... I guess to contemporary sensibilities, a bit boring to watch because the rhythm is not the st- mm. the one that we're used to. Let's talk about kind of the the vampiric elements of this film as. Well. And do you know if if Blackula is the first black vampire on screen? Um, I believe he was, but um, who's to say? Because there was so much black cinema that was happening earlier than this that Mm. has just been completely not preserved and you know fundamentally destroyed like Mm. as much as we think of black exploitation as being this pioneering thing you know going back to the 40s black people were making their own films Mm -hmm. for black audiences and just none of it survived so we can tentatively say that it was the first black vampire but sadly we'll never know for sure yeah this is certainly accurate and and it's very often kind of the the importance of preservation and archiving is not as wildly kind of supported as it really should be because it's the disappearance of work that we then regret and we don't even know that it was there or how people reacted to it yeah um, but let's talk about blackula himself about mamu walde so how is he characterized? Like, what do you make of him as our lead character, our protagonist, but also 
the 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 villain of the film or is he even a villain yeah is he even a villain by the i think that's one of the things that doesn't actually particularly work with it is mm. his like evolution into the villain because mm-hmm. i was team Mamuel day the whole way through yes. but um yeah i liked how they set him up as him being this kind of african prince yeah. meeting dracula to try and appeal to him about the barbarity of slavery mm-hmm. and in turn being you know uh being turned by dracula and his wife being murdered and then he like re-emerges into essentially a modern day retelling of the dracula myth um and he's a I think if you, I'm assuming chronologically, this is post, it's definitely post Bella Lugosi's Dracula. Is it past, yes. past and it's post probably Christopher Lee. Yes, Christopher Lee's is 58. Frank Langella. Oh, well, I am now an expert on the Frank Langella, <laughs> Frank Langella <laughs> Dracula, as all my thirsty tweets point to. Um, <laughs> no, that is 79, so it's pre. Okay. So um, okay, I'm gonna make a bold statement out there. I would say mm. this is the sexiest of the bunch. Like I think this man had a real six foot five baritone presence about him, <laughs> and in a way throughout the film, I felt that it was surprising that there wasn't that much um, mm. chemistry with his love interest because I felt that I had a lot of chemistry with him just through my like TV screen. <laughs> <laughs> like, is, you know, there's something going on between the two of us. <laughs> I found that. I found that encounter in the in the preamble to like the full um, the action of the film in the modern in the modern days so in the seventies, mm-hmm. kind of when he meets Dracula with Yuba, his uh, his wife, to be quite an interesting scene because Dracula is like a barbaric, really rude character, and also played like really in a really really terrible way. Um, I can't even remember the actor's name, and like Mamu Walde is just this you know, re- exceedingly, like, aristocratic presence. Mm. Well, he's a Shakespearean actor, and apparently he, before this he'd been very famous for his multiple portrayals of Othello, which you oh. can just picture. It's not a yeah. big leap. So, he's got such gravitas. Yeah, he does. And kind of, so what do you think um, this stage actor gravitas that um, William Marshall brings what do you think he brings to the role that kind of makes him stand out next to the many many people who have performed who have portrayed Dracula both on stage and screen well surprisingly for a kind of cheesy black exploitation flick he's not very camp at all he Mm. kind of retains this like alpha male high postured kind of uh Mas- dignified masculinity I mean I'm always hesitant mm-hmm. to say masculinity like it's a compliment because <laughs> it's not necessarily but um yeah I thought um he really um stood out mm-hmm. as as being this um presence that you miss when he's not on screen and I think a lot of the cast can't really meet him at what he's doing and what do you think kind of about him being turned into a vampire as a sort of punishment. That almost seemed quite quite a strange type of punish, punishment. It's like, oh, I'm going to condemn you to be immortal and have all of these extra powers. Well, usually in vampire films, they kind of treat being turned into a vampire as like a, a rare thing that a Dracula or other vampires would do. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that whole scene at the beginning is kind of so unnecessary in so many ways and I think it's um it's actually one of the great things about what William Crane did of like we're gonna actually layer in a lot of interesting power dynamics and stuff right from the beginning because you've got 
um, him, you know, wanting to end sl the slave trade and, you know, mm -hmm. calling it essentially white barbarity. Mm -hmm. And then in one of my favorite little moments, you've got the Dracula saying, oh, I'm very sexually attracted to your wife and you should be highly complimented that I'm attracted to this black woman. Um, and then you've got, yeah, you've got this slight yeah. thing of it's not enough for the, him to destroy um, uh, Mama Walde. He mm. needs to, you know, have an unspeakable torture happening because he's, in, for all intents and purposes, just hoping that he's going to be encased in this tomb in this, like, hellish, you know, thirst for the rest of eternity, which is not a great plan. To, I mean, because if immortal people live forever, eventually they will get out. <laughs> this is true. If um, hundreds of vampire movies and American Horror Story Coven has told us anything, it's that people who are immortal do come back eventually. Yeah. But that scene also probably has one of the most fantastic comebacks I've seen ever, which is where um, William Marshall just goes, Sir, are you ill? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, it, it's um, weird because a lot of this film drags, mm. but the moments where it is actually like firing on a few cylinders, like <laughs> you do see like this kind of more interesting thing emerging and then you'll just get a lot of um, not so great stuff. What do you think kind of doesn't work about it or kind of if that feels the jankiest in 2020? think i didn't i just fully didn't really care about the kind of van helsing role um mm. investigation into it all i think there's a few interesting lines where he says things about how oh why is it that all of the um black people's murders and and, and gay people's murders like the the police keep not doing those reports properly and like not filing them but then it's kind of never mentioned again and i was like no let's get back into that i don't care about this stuff <laughs> <laughs> Um, and and it, dra it really does like slow everything down. I remember getting to the end of this film and being just like, oh, this film would have been a lot better if it had just been like a tight 90 minutes. And then I looked down and it was 92. And in my head, it had been going on for like two hours, 15, easy. <laughs> yeah, that's that's when you know that something's not working. It doesn't. And you mentioned um, his chemistry with his love interest. So played mm. by the same actress kind of who plays his wife in the in the flashback, yeah. Yuba, and then Tina in the 70s. Who I guess is Mina, if this were going yeah. to Jack Dracula law. Yeah, she doesn't really have much to do, does she? And I don't know that we can entirely blame the actress, but her role is so passive. And so I just found myself being like, oh, could I pull off a small afro like that? And like, you know, really not paying that much attention to her because she was kind of just very dialed down, over restrained when, especially mm -hmm. in scenes with Mama Welde coming in and being so, you know, with that beautiful booming baritone, mm -hmm. like she just doesn't match him. I mean, does anyone in the film, no. do you think? That's true. <laughs> doesn't feel scary apart from a couple of scenes perhaps mm. but what do you make of the way that the film uses violence in this film uh, what do you think of the way that the film uses violence um yeah i mean i thought some of the violence was quite funny I, there's quite i think there's more funny moments in this film than there are um unsettling or scary ones mm. but and i don't know that and i think that is on purpose to be fair yeah, the, I mean, I'm trying to even think what were the scenes of intense violence. There's um, a few 
you're kind of shielded from a lot of it. Mm. I think they were probably quite conscious of like wanting to reach a mass audience with this. So it doesn't go in too deep with the kind of ripping out of throats. Even like the puncture marks on the neck tend to be two very small, like nibbles. <laughs> nibbles. And uh, <laughs> what do you think of the, um, you mentioned kind of that one scene that is, actually quite creepy and Mm. and quite scary um what about it do you think kind of actually works as a as a scene or as a or as a horror movie that could be rewatched and enjoyed in now um i think it would i think there's kind of there's some stuff that feels really ahead of its time and i think and that scene with the slow motion running just feels like something from a like more more accomplished film in many mm-hmm. ways in that they haven't they don't really do anything particularly stylish with the way that they shoot uh things aside from in that moment um but yeah there's a lot about there are just a few moments where this film does take off but never for long and yeah some of it does feel very ahead of its time some of the themes do seem really progressive like i love that mama Welde never goes to refer to himself as blackula because you know that would be his slave name and he is a dignified man who does not uh, get renamed by uh, murderous counts no, but he's a at the same time i mean we can't talk about this film without mentioning the way it treats its gay characters is not good no, there, there's two, um, again, also interior decorators, mm. two guys who are um, coded as gay and they're interior decorators and they're kind of murdered by, by Mama Walde when they uh, accidentally awaken him when they open mm. up his coffin. It is a product of its time. It is problematic in the way that it treats basically everyone else even arguably perhaps uh the female characters as well yeah not nothing to be uh particularly proud of there (laughs) they weren't pushing any of the boundaries but apparently um in the sequel scream black yellow scream Mm -hmm. the main character is pam greer so i might i'd be interested to go and watch that and to see whether it may be maybe those were some observations that they made themselves of the previous film and have corrected so aside from some of its um, problematic treatments of, of gay characters and of female characters, how do you think it was ahead of its time? Uh, well, I thought there was like, yeah, there were some moments about kind of like, oh, the, how the way that the police treats certain members of society and literally just does not mm-hmm. try to solve their murders, which felt very ahead of this time. And they kind of touch on that even with the gay characters being like, oh, well, who cares what happens to these guys? Because the police aren't really going to follow up on it. Um and I thought if they had just kind of edged into that, that was kind of peeking into maybe not 2020, but I think we're certainly in the 90s with that sort of thinking. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it it's better than I thought it was going to be, but that does not make it a good film. And what do you think kind of, I mean, we've mentioned before that it was a huge box office success. Like mm. it was one of the highest grossing films of of its year of 1972. So what do you think has been its, aside from the the sequel, Scream, Blackula Scream, what do you think has been its impact on popular culture? I think sadly, like, I don't know that it has had a huge impact on popular mm. culture. And I think that's one of the 
things that is often very frustrating when you're looking at like things that are made by and for women or by and for people of color Mm -hmm. where it's like you can prove yourself that something is popular and that something is profitable and that something can be done and it's like there's a complete amnesia from the film industry like six months later by like no no we can't possibly do something with like a black lead or we can't possibly have like a woman directing a a mainstream action film so it should i mean the impact isn't at what it um it really should have been Hmm. And would you, I mean, we've sort of avoided spoiling too many details about the film. There's not much to spoil. It's the Dracula story. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Do you think that contemporary horror fans would enjoy this film? Yeah, I think it's interesting. And um, it may feel like it's two hours, but it's only 90 (laughs) minutes of your time. (laughs) I don't think that really counts as much of a recommendation, Leila. I know, but we've all got a lot of time on our hands, okay? <laughs> but I also think, well, for the most part, like, mm-hmm. I grew up in Sudan and I, you know, spent most of my adulthood here. There's a lot of things that is that have not been that accessible to people until this new age of streaming has mm-hmm. come in. And, like, Blackula, if you haven't seen any black exploitation films and you want to kind of correct that in the film, Blackula is not a bad example of the genre. Although, you know... No Pam Greer, so maybe Scream, Blackula, Scream is also yeah, a good double true. bill. So, is there anything that we haven't touched upon uh, about Blackula that you'd like to mention before we move on to Ganja and Hess? Um, not really, actually. I think it kind of it. it uh, the, like I said, there's like a few things that are like surprisingly better than you expect. But aside from that, if you just kind of picture what Black Hill is going to be, you're probably about 80% right. <laughs> so on that note, let's move on to a film that is definitely much denser and with a lot more themes to discuss. So let's chat now about Ganja and Hess from 1973. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for thee, preserve thee body and soul for everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee. And be thankful. I have to admit, I had not seen this film before, and I am embarrassed that I had not seen it before. Well, you shouldn't be embarrassed because it's incredibly hard to get your hands on. 
And part of its legacy is how it it has been very difficult to get your hands on from day one, from the moment it came out. Like this was not something that was widely available for even like the most ardent of horror fans to to come across. Well, that does make me feel better, although not not that much. Um, but <laughs> what is your relationship with the film? Had you seen it before choosing it from the list of films that I sent you or kind of a, yeah. how did you feel about revisiting it now? Yeah, I think I've watched it for the first time when I was in university, but I watched the terribly hacked down version and I believe then it was called Blood Couple and it was only like 70 minutes long. And then a few years after that, I watched um, when Spike Lee came out with his remake. I thought, well, you know, I should really kind of see the original of this because I discovered that I hadn't seen the proper version. Mm -hmm. And then I tried my absolute hardest to rewatch it for this podcast, but I could not find it anywhere. And so I ended up having to kind of just literally fill in my memory with YouTube videos, <laughs> with like everything that I could find because it is impossible to get your hands on. But I have seen Ganja and Hess in virtually every format it is available to be seen and I have seen the remake of uh, Ganja and Hess so I, I do feel confident to talk about this film. I mean I would not doubt it <laughs> but let's talk about the history of this film because you mentioned that it's incredibly hard to find even now yeah. and uh, it was sort of remade by Spike Lee as uh, The Blood of Jesus I think mm -hmm. and so what is this film like what is this this experimental art house horror film from the 70s it's unbelievable this film but like the story of how it came about is almost as interesting as the film itself so brief history um following the huge success of blackula mm -hmm. bill gunn who is a playwright and um a wonderful he made i think one film beforehand or at least written one film beforehand he decides that he wants to make this film Ganja and Hess, which he markets as a reasonably, like a higher brow, but a reasonably straightforward um, black vampire film. Mm -hmm. So he shoots the film, they rewrite it um, as they're going along. He shoots a lot more exposition. And then when he gets to the editing room, he basically cuts out all of the, uh, all of the exposition and just has this really strange, meditative, incredible experimental film. Um, is then the only American film that is selected to be at the Cannes Film Festival where it gets like a nine minute standing ovation and is on so many European critics like top 10 films of the year and even films of the decade goes back to America where the critics are just very very lukewarm about it to the extent that he writes this amazing article which I sent you mm -hmm. um, all about how what the way white critics treat black films the studio seeing this uh hand it over to a different editor and they say like make us something much more conventional conventional they cut it down to like just over an hour put in a load of the exposition scenes that that bill gunn had um taken out very purposefully and it it literally then is, is released a few times under like eight different names the only original, everyone involved takes their name off it, saying we don't want anything to do with this butchered version of our film. And the only existing print of it exists in the Museum of Modern Art until quite recently, where it was made available again. But sadly, follow, only following the deaths of both Bill Gunn and Dwayne Jones. Truly, yeah, it's been 
re-released by Eureka, I think, in the UK on on Blu-ray. So it is kind of available in a home entertainment. Um, yeah. And it was available on Shudder until not long ago, so I'm hoping it will come yeah. back. I think it's still available in this in the US Shudder, but okay. I'll I'll double check and link to it. We've mentioned kind of uh, you know experimental and it's weird and, and kind of very one of a kind and mm. it had a terribly troubled life cycle after a great premiere at Cannes. But how would you describe this film? Oh, I just think it's absolutely unbelievable it's like this very very thoughtful examination of mortality um, of religion and of addiction very loosely told around the vampire myth and the word vampire is never said it's not a conventional vampire in that it's a curse through a dagger rather than the biting of a neck and I feel like there's like six different interpretations of this film that you could come away from that would fully work like if you were to look at this as a film about Christianity versus Afro-paganism there's enough there to have a full film if you if it's just a look at addiction if it's a look at kind of class and social mobility within the African-American community like there is it is absolute I absolutely adore this film I really do and each time I've come back to it even though I've seen butchered and non-butchered versions I Feel I can take something else away from it. You mentioned kind of different roots and interpretations into it. Kind of how do you read it? Like what is your preferred reading of the of the film? My preferred reading is probably the addiction route because I I mean I love Dwayne Jones. I think everybody who's a horror fan loves Dwayne Jones. He's basically only in two films, uh this one and Night of the Living Dead, but like two incredible films. Um and I really like this idea of he's he's sort of so jaded and so kind of tired of his life and there these very then this addiction overcomes him and he tries to break out of it in various ways as we all do by just succumbing to it by resisting it by like pouring everything into a relationship by trying to distract himself by other pursuits and nothing really works and so I really um like that viewing of it but then but then in a way that's a disservice to Hess who is um to Ganja who is just as fascinating what let's talk a little bit about the importance of Dwayne Jones as the mm. lead in this film because like you mentioned his own his other kind of big I mean probably one of the most influential horror films ever made Night of the Living Dead and a lot has been written and, and talked about um the importance of having him in a lead role in that film as a black mm. actor, even though I think George Romero then was talking about the fact that it wasn't kind of a, a meaningful casting choice or anything like that, which seems a bit bullshitty. Yeah, I don't believe that at all. Yeah, I don't believe that either. It's like it. So, what do you think? Kind of, um, what do you think? Sorry, let me rephrase that question. I'm struggling to phrase it. Um, why do you think it is so? important to have to have Bill Gunn cast Dwayne Jones in the lead role in this I think it's an incredibly difficult part to pull off because he's so unengaged from so much that's happening around him and Dwayne Jones just has this like intelligence and magnetism to like every single thing that he does so 
you can feel his his disconnection from things that he's doing even though he's only been on screen for three minutes and you barely know anything about this character you fully understand him um and he i, I think in many ways from what i understand about bell gun and Dwayne jones is that they're very uncompromising artists and they weren't which i mean this is the reason that they did so little because they weren't willing to just put their name to anything or just put themselves up to anything they didn't really feel that strongly about and I think there was a perfect marriage with these kind of two sensibilities that they have just like phenomenally intelligent understated but like very experimental style that they have how do you think that lends itself to the scenes that they share together? Because Bill Gunn plays a, a supporting a supporting role in the film, and he's actually the one who kind of, well, transforms Hess into this vampiric or, or you know, quasi-vampiric creature. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's always a bold move, is it, when somebody casts themselves in a film? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, normally doesn't work out but yeah he's he's got he's got that slightly unhinged presence without ever going too big with it mm. and I think it's one of the things that doesn't particularly work about the Spike Lee um, remake is that these guys and their performances are both even though nuts things are happening and big emotions are happening like they just keep everything so bubbling under the surface even when George Mader is having like a huge breakdown, like he doesn't oversell it. It never gets camp. It never gets broad at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I really like this film. Did you like it? Oh my god, Layla! Oh, I'm so pleased. <laughs> Like, literally, this is why I was saying in the beginning, I'm embarrassed to not have seen this film before because it is. I'm gonna butcher my thoughts on this, but. This film feels fully understanding poetry for the first time. Yeah. You know, like when something really clicks and it's it sort of sits in between that, those worlds of horror and horrific imagery mm. and tapping into something much deeper than just cheap thrills or blood or violence in, in the cheapest of sense. In the way that kind of um, Blackula, the film we were talking about before, was kind of you know creating kind of scenes of violence but we're just exploitative in 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 the sense like this is just cheap horror yeah this is trying to go into the meaning of it and at times it feels like a trance as well yeah and the scenes with bill gunn and like you were talking about before the scenes with bill gunn and dwayne jones just feel almost like you're worried about what's going to happen because it's entirely unpredictable like, there is no way that you can, I don't know, at least I couldn't kind of predict where anything was going because the characters all seem so entirely fluid and changing in every scene without ever losing the, without ever losing the center of their character, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's actually a very difficult film to describe, I think, yeah. in many ways, because whatever you say, you don't feel that you're quite conveying, like, this, like, huge tapestry of things that's going on in every, every given scene like I could do a full episode just about the clothes in this film like everybody looks so good <laughs> but then you know but in a way that's kind of being like flippant because it's not it's not that's the such style. a minor part 
Yeah, it's not just style at all. But I did want to talk to you about kind of one particular scene. Uh, I mean, there's many scenes that we could literally talk for an hour about. But Mm. one scene that really struck me, because perhaps it's the most um, overtly vampiric one, perhaps, but it's also a sex scene. And it's the scene uh, between Ganja and Hess, where the way that I read it is that it was her transformation into into a vampire. Yeah. And it's sort of glittering and it's just gorgeously shot and it's very esoteric. And there's a lot of, you know, blending of, of skins and of blood and yells and screams. And like, you can't quite tell when the sex stops and the bloodletting is starting and vice versa yeah and it's interesting because it's so close to their wedding yeah but it feels because the scenes of their wedding are so kind of staid and Mm -hmm. like joyless and then you have that scene where it's just like oh no this is kind of the true wedding the true union of Mm -hmm. them being like inextricably linked together yeah oh god I love this film. I'm so glad that it has survived. Thank goodness for the Museum of Modern Art for keeping some version of it available for us. And what do you think kind of about uh, the relationship between Ganja and Hess? Or Hess and Ganja, I should say. It's really interesting because essentially one of them, it turns out, is not cut out for mortality and the immortality and the other one is. And I think there was some like really interesting stuff at play all about like the nature of like black men versus black women about how like black men are maybe doomed to have like higher expectations for themselves and like you can get very close to like this wonderful idealized existence but black women are by their very nature filled with unfulfilled ambitions so actually when they are dealt a a good hand they really do make the most of it Mm. One of the things that I loved about this film, and I don't know that like where how much this basis anything has a, a basis in reality of like that you can be an anthropologist and be that wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> only in America. Only in America and only in movies. In the yeah. same way that, you know. And also you can be an anthropologist that wealthy and that hot and that young. That's true. And multilingual. Yes. Only in this film and Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, just like this. I love the. Oh my god! One of my favorite little moments in it is the when Ganja arrives to yeah. Hess's mansion, and yes. she automatically assumes that he's working there rather than the owner of this. Yes. <laughs> and then, like this kind of like loving, like little smile and little giggle that they both mm. have, like you know, like oh yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> and you know, there's so much like nuance in that moment. Absolutely. And, That's and also I love one of my that, favorite like, moments. Like, Ganja's kind of a bitch. <laughs> like, like that she's like really horrible to the staff. Well, let's talk about that because it's not like it's not that often that um, well that female characters are allowed to be very openly unpleasant and bitchy mm-hmm. in in a way that they're not uh, serving a humorous purpose in a way that they're not kind of just being campy bitchy. Yeah, but proper and pleasant. Um, and it, and it's especially rare to see uh, women of color on screen being allowed to be unpleasant. Yeah. And so what do you think about Ganja being like quite mean very often? I mean, from the very moment we first meet her, she is she's quite awful to him. Yeah, um, because 
that's the way the world has treated her. And so that's kind of the attitude she has to come with everything because you're so used to being disrespected, to being undermined and to not getting like your your due mm. um, attention from people. Then that is how you respond to it. And, you know, it's lovely in the end of the film, she's kind of got her immortality, she's dealing with it reasonably well, and she's got this vast wealth and this mansion, and and you do feel she's, she at that point can relax mm. a little bit, and allow herself to be, you know, soften slightly, if she wants to, or not. <laughs> And I wanted to talk a little bit about this idea of, because we've mentioned before that the word vampire is never really uttered in the film. No. And they really avoid kind of the conventional trappings of vampire films and of vampire lore. Mm-hmm. Um, but this very much kind of uses the idea of, of vampire's dependency on blood as uh, a metaphor for addiction and that's yeah. one of the readings that the readings that you mentioned before mm-hmm. so how do you think it explores the idea of addiction through through the lens of horror and of vampires yeah i mean i assume being in the black community in the 70s this was something that was very close to home for the people making it um i don't think it's the first time that vampirism has been used as a uh, example of addiction it is something that works perfectly yeah. well and this idea of being powerless and um being unable to steer yourself away from it mm-hmm. and as much as you are loved and as much as you are nurtured there is nothing that you can do because that is your primary goal you need to do incredibly awful things as the scene that very much reminded me of um under the skin mm-hmm. with the prostitute and the baby which is you know tough to watch yeah but um, I also just really like the idea of like vampirism as a kind of metaphor for moving away from like African paganism into Christianity. That was like oh. a interpretation that I hadn't really ever seen before, because there is this whole thing of you know these visions. You know, it's a it's a curse that comes from an African dagger, and uh-huh. you know, eventually at the end of the film, um, Hess's salvation is all in accepting the you know christianity and essentially what is this um an anglicized spirituality versus the afro-paganism of this curse Hmm. and do you think it's kind of trying to ask itself whether a vampire and you know however you choose to interpret or what meaning you choose to prescribe to the idea of a vampire that a vampire can be saved um yeah i mean that's the thing if you kind of look at it as a um look at addiction mm-hmm. that is a pretty bleak ending to, to be dealt with yeah um because the idea is that this is not something that can be solved aside from you dying but if if you if that's like the not the version of events you can go with it is very interesting the idea that a vampire can be saved by simply using these skills to um kind of forward the motives that they had to begin with and in like Ganja's case like you know she has certain things that she wants for herself and this is simply going to be a way that enables her to get them like she is not actually consumed by this addiction it's just sort of a means to an end Mm -hmm. and we've spoken a lot about the themes in the film and stuff but I'd love to talk a little bit about the filmmaking itself what did you make of it visually it's so gorgeous, isn't it? You just like 
You almost don't want to say it's when I like sigh. (laughs) (laughs) But um, when I I say visually, I'm also kind of, I really want to hear your thoughts about the sound as well, which I found so interesting. So hypnotic. Yeah. It's just one of those things where you sit down and, but with, with the visuals and with the sound, it just completely absorbs you. And I think where maybe like the idea of like oh a super experimental vampire film where it's actually you know they tell you exactly i mean it is un- it is very unusual the way it's constructed in that it like gives you narration to tell you exactly what's going to happen in the next 45 minutes essentially um that um that that isn't something that's like at all challenging for the brain somehow it's actually something that sort of turns the lights down and just fully absorbs you into it it's a fascinating thing to experience and it's almost like you're experiencing something rather than just like passively watching it i was about to say the same thing like the word experience like this feel this film feels like a like an like an experience as opposed to a viewing or just watching something and following mm. the plot at some point you kind of give up on um on trying to like make it make sense narratively and just try to feel it so it makes sense emotionally so you connect with the characters and what they're feeling and how they're experiencing it there's a scene in particular kind of um towards the end where there's a ton of wailing um Mm. and i think it's and i think it's from hess or at least that's how i interpreted it and it's so painful like it almost feels physically painful yeah I mean, I loved all of those scenes towards the end when, when those long scenes in the churches that almost feel like they're, I'm, I would not be, I, I'm not sure about this, but I would put good money on that being a real church and a real congregation because there was something about this sort of um, religious experience that were, that they were having that felt so authentic. I wanted to ask you about the influence that this film has had. So we've kind of talked about its troubled history, it's troubled preservation Hmm. but also brought up um the remake by spike lee which probably hopefully brought a whole new generation of audiences to it um so what do you think has been the the influence of this film on on other films on other vampire films on other filmmakers um I, i mean it's funny because i kind of can't think of anything that similar to it um that's been done by black filmmakers aside from obviously Spike Lee doing a Mm. remake Um, and I wonder whether there's actually maybe a negative influence of a film like this because of its troubled history because it did not recoup any of its losses because it got mediocre reviews that were probably actually meant that a lot of really interesting experimental black films didn't get made Sorry, that's a really bummer answer, but I bet that's the case. <laughs> so, what did you actually think of the of the Spike Lee film in comparison to this one? Like, in, with in, in in a broad sense, without um spoiling it. Um, it's not as bad as like the remake of Psycho. Um, and it's and but it's not great. It kind of the performances aren't anywhere near there. Where like where I think Spike Lee and I love Spike Lee tends to throw a lot at the screen and a lot of ideas and a lot of pacing, but you really do see like the cogs wearing. Like this film is so 
um, never gives you too much is so relaxed in itself and so conf quietly confident that I don't think that really worked that well with Spike Lee's sensibility. But it is kind of fun to see young Rami Malek in the butler role. <laughs> and um, before we wrap up, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the ending. What did you make mm. of it? Oh, I was devastated by... Um, I thought that whole scene where, you know, uh, Hess decides that he doesn't want to live any longer was really upsetting, not least because, you know, it's very sad that Dwayne Jones did not live that much longer after this. And it was really affecting. Um, but, you know, then we do have a sort of post that triumph for Ganja. But I think I was so especially in like my, my most recent viewing um, where I had become a full-fledged horror fan and I'd seen Night of the Living Dead like six times. Um, <laughs> that, that that kind of mournful tone was quite consuming for me. Uh -huh. I think seeing it fresh, I probably wouldn't have felt that way. And I don't want to take away from the actual ending, but yeah, that's how I felt. What about you? Um, I mean, I'm kind of still processing it. I'm mildly overwhelmed by the experience of seeing it and I almost want to rewatch it in a setting that is I, I think like this is a film that needs to have a whole setting like a whole prep yeah to watch it properly I think mournful is the word mm. the word of the day for this film I felt sad because um you know in a in a slightly flippant way a a smart multilingual anthropologist who is also uh, some a, a millionaire and has a huge mansion is is probably would be my choice of for a, an eternal vampire. Mm. Um, but I did like that at least one of them survived, yeah. and one of them survived, kind of having achieved some sense of calm. Um, like you mentioned before, the fact that Ganja kind of uh, softened a little bit by this influx of new power. And I actually really like the idea that it raises. And one of the things I really like about vampire films in general, they don't always explore this really, is if you could, would you want to? Like, would you want yeah. to have these powers, these limitations, uh, the implications of what it means to live forever, uh, the implications of this sort of like eternal addiction. And I like that it that this film lets its characters, its two lead characters, fall in love and, and explore that together and make their own individual choices. Yeah, but then in retrospect, doesn't it become insane that this was then marketed and then widely regarded for many decades as a black exploitation film it could not be further i literally from that, aside from having black leads and and to be honest like before i watched it that was the vague like i knew the name of the film and that was mm. the vague idea that i had of it so, oh it's an early 70s film it's it's a it's a black horror film oh it must fit into the black exploitation movement and it couldn't be further from it. And yeah. I think it is a detriment that, to this film that it was that it sort of was ever mismarketed as such or then for years and decades afterwards was kind of mixed together with films that were like just entirely different leagues. Well, it is, yeah, I mean, there's, there, it is 
I mean, there's such a joyful thing in watching a wonderful film like this, but mm. then, like, there's just such accompanying sadness about, like, that this really didn't get its due, that it wasn't treated right, that everyone involved was not given the praise that they deserve, not given the careers that they deserved following making something like this. And, you know, were it not for a few people recognising it's uh, how special it is, it would, you know, just be completely lost to us all and i mean it's insane i've seen so many vampire films (laughs) and i mean you especially with this series will probably have be up there with the people that's in the most on this planet (laughs) but i've never seen anything like this i like i gotta be with you i'm i've seen a lot of films and we've both seen a lot of films like in general and horror and then all the different subgenres and subsections of it we all have our preferences. Vampires have always been a thing for me personally, but I've never, like very rarely, I can count on two hands, probably, the amount of films that truly make me think, I have never seen something like this. Yeah. It's exceedingly rare. And it does, I mean, directly after this, I'm probably going to go away and read every single article that's ever been written about Ganja and has to try to piece together its history. But that annoyance and that sadness and films that were not understood and protected in their time, yeah. it's, it's unfortunately always going to be there. It is. And, you know, if there's anything that um, maybe people will, take from it is that um you need to afford more creative freedom to people to work outside of the box and i think for all that everybody who's a horror fan gets annoyed with blumhouse like blumhouse at least does do that it does let people complete their vision so i'm conscious that you you have to go to go see mank yeah <laughs> which i know sadly i'm not going to enjoy as much as much as i love this film but hopefully it's still going to be worth the trip i would love to see this film in a cinema so much i know i know it would be so wonderful before you go um thank you so much for your time and for your insight as ever and where can people find more of your work online Lots of the stuff coming up for Little White Lies. I've got um, some things for Vulture and Freeze coming out about the Small Axe series and Steve McQueen. And uh, yeah, I'm around. If anybody wants to talk about Ganja and Hess, just slide on into those DMs. <laughs> you might regret that invitation after I a while. I will never regret that. It could be <laughs> a thousand DMs and I, a day and I would be like, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. Amazing. Layla, thanks again. Pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. If you can, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help a lot with people discovering the show. You can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirls.uk. You can also follow Layla on Twitter at Layla underscore Latif, and I am at Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening and we'll be back with another Vampire Double Bill next week.